electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. New credit card spending data show even more of a slowdown than the retail sales report told us earlier this week. Still, one portfolio manager says the consumer has never been healthier. He'll give us his reopening pick that's climbed 88% over the past year. Plus, the March outage in crypto platform Binance just happened to coincide with a trillion-dollar drop in the crypto market. And now hundreds of traders who couldn't access their coins that day are seeking compensation. We talked to the private equity firm bankrolling this lawsuit about what kind of precedent it could set. And is the Delta variant and new mask mandates in major cities bringing the rebound in restaurant visits to a screeching halt? We'll talk to the CEO of P.F. Chang's about that and the ongoing labor shortage. But we begin with a check on the numbers today. Come take a walk with me. As we check on markets this hour, you wouldn't know that it was a big down day this morning. Dow was down more than 300 points, but we're well off that right now as we fought our way back to flat with a seven-point gain. We're up 15 on the S&P right now, up 79 on the Nasdaq. We'll tell you about that in a moment. But first, let's look at some of the material names taking a hit as commodity prices fall and worries grow about the economic rebound. Freeport McMoran, the copper play, down more than 4%. Cleveland Cliffs, down 5%. Jan Hansius at Goldman lowering his third quarter GDP estimate to just 5.5% from 9%. All of these are some of the worst performers in that space today. By the way, before we move uh, along too quickly, Kathy Wood this morning also said she expected more downside pressure in the commodity space, especially from a lifting dollar. Now, that brings us to technology, which is outperforming today. NVIDIA and Cisco, common theme here, earnings. Positive stock reaction setting the tone, offsetting some weakness in the hardware names. NVIDIA is hanging on to about a 5.5% gain. Going the other way, Robinhood. Those shares are down sharply today. Here they are, almost 8% lower. This after posting their big loss last night, but also saying they expect volume to slow in the months ahead, earning them some criticism. Jim Cramer saying, why go out on a limb like that? Uh, hood still uh, under the hood, not looking so hot today. Meantime, the economic impact of the Delta variant is starting to show up across the country. Steve Leisman is here with his road back barometer for us. Michelle Meyer also joins us. She's head of U.S. economics at Bank of America with some card data speaking to this trend as well. Steve, let's start with you. Thanks, uh, Kelly. The effects of the Delta variant are indeed showing up in the high-frequency data, flattening out the upward slope uh, of the recovery for some parts of the economy, but revealing some outright declines in others. Open table reservations, they were actually above their 2019 level in June. Now they're 9% below. The J.P. Morgan card spending tracker for in-store spending, it's down 3.9% from 20, compared to 20, January 2020. It has stopped improving. And UKG shift work, that's a high-frequency proxy for employment. It slipped 2.4% so far in the month of August. Most of the weakness in the data looks to be linked to the South and the Southeast, where the Delta variant has exploded, hence the census that comes from the Delta variant. Take a look, UKG work shift numbers, they're down in every region of the country for August. That looks to be sort of a seasonal component to it, but they're down much more sharply, you can see, in the Southeast. That's that second red bar there. Growth in open table bookings in Florida and Texas declined sharply. 
down much less in California and New York. That, again, suggests a Delta connection. There had been, by the way, a steady increase in, in spending in stores. That's according to J.P. Morgan's credit card data. But the gap looks once again to be widening with the data that shows the spending for card not present. That's the online spending there. Wait till you get to the end there. You can see that gap widening once again. Goldman Sachs, as Kelly said, just slashed its third quarter growth forecast because of Delta, saying it worth both consumption and on the production side. Others may follow suit, especially if the weak data we've seen in the South spreads to the coast and up north. Kelly? And Steve, stay right there as we turn to Michelle Meyer. Michelle, you've also got data showing a slowdown, and especially a slowdown in leisure spending airports, hotels, restaurants, and bars. Yeah, we've been actively mining the high-frequency data. Um, Some of the indicators Steve had mentioned are top on our list, as well as our own proprietary data, aggregated Bank America credit and debit card data. And, you know, we've been really kind of pounding the tables over the last few weeks that there is a clear impact from the Delta variant in the data. And what stands out the most is this proxy we've created for leisure services spending, which has airfare, lodging, um, restaurants and bars and entertainment services. This peaked on a two-year growth rate um, right around the first week of July and has been steadily Flipping since then. It's a clear downward trend, loss of momentum in this indicator, with some categories seeing outright declines. So um, we do think in the high frequency data that the services economy, which was booming and was the main source of growth throughout the spring and early summer, looks to have stalled out. Yeah, this is a big newsflash, if we want to call it that. Michelle, where are you on the Fed taper at this point? Yeah. So, you know, similar to um, what you were just referencing about uh, some of the forecast changes you've seen across the street, we actually were pretty early with also taking down Q3 GDP. So we've taken down Q3 to actually four and a half percent. We did that earlier in the week on the back of the car data and the retail sales numbers that confirmed our car data. Um, but what does it mean for tapering? So I think that this clearly takes September off the table, the data we're seeing for them to announce the taper in September. Um, I think November is still in play. If you see signs that the economy is coming back to, you know, stronger growth, if the number, the COVID numbers come down, if this proves to be a proper wave in the pandemic and you see a rebound of activity, I think November is very much in play. There is a sense within the minutes that Fed officials want to get going with tapering, but they only want to do so clearly if the data allows for it. I'm tweeting this, uh, Michelle, so give me a moment. Uh, So, Steve, you know, I know you're probably digesting this as much as I am. We've been reporting all week about how the Fed's just getting ready to announce the taper in September. Now Michelle's here telling me that September is out the window for them. Well, I mean, first of all, nobody is talking about a taper decision by the Federal Reserve that is divorced from the economic data. I think the question becomes this. It becomes a question of risk management. And, And here... I guess I'm going to part a little bit with Michelle on this, which is that there's a bunch of folks at the Fed who are worried, not necessarily about inflation right now, but inflation down the road and want to position the Federal Reserve to be in a position to combat inflation if they need to. Uh, and they're kind of in a hurry to get into that position. Um, and, and really, it gets to the data, because, Michelle, what I'm seeing in the high frequency data mm. is not the kind of declines we saw when the alpha variant came around. Uh, I'm seeing things top off, go flat a little bit in terms of their growth or their return back to zero. And I'm seeing some stuff dip down a bit. I don't think it's huge right now. And I don't know that it's enough to sort of stop the Fed in their appointed rounds of trying to get that taper going so they can have the flexibility to fight inflation. Last word, Michelle. Yeah, sure. I mean, look, I agree. Fed officials, many are, are itching to get going with taper. 
but only to the extent that they think they're meeting the criteria for substantial further progress towards the employment goals. And if the next jobs report ends up being softer because of what we're seeing in some of this high frequency data, it will prompt them to wait until they gather more data, more evidence about what comes next for the economy. So to me, the best, the most likely scenario is in the September meeting, they put out kind of a placeholder for taper, some greater guidance about data dependence to get going with taper. And then depending on how that data and that data being the jobs numbers progresses, they can go ahead and announce it when they think the coast is clear. Wow. Fascinating stuff. Again, high stakes jobs report, high stakes taper. And with the end of the employment benefits and so much else feeding in at exactly this moment, um, it's going to be a very interesting few weeks. Michelle and Steve, thank you very, very much today. Michelle Meyer with B of A and our own Steve Leesman. Now, interestingly enough, despite the spending slowdown we've just been discussing, my next guest says the consumer has never been stronger and will be able to keep the economy's engines going. I see him nodding in the periphery of my eye. There's Sandy Villery. He's co-portfolio manager of the Villery Balance Fund, and he has a reopening pick that's nearly doubled over the past year. Sandy, make your case. Yeah, so, um, you know, clearly the last data we got on the consumer uh, in in July was worse than expected. And, you know, my, my point, though, is that, you know, you've got a You've got consumers that still have over two trillion in excess savings, you know, from the three rounds of stimulus um, house household, uh, you know, um, this household net worth is, is um, still near highs. You got 401k balances near highs. Um, and I think when the, the employment situation gets a little bit better. Right. So we got nine and a half million unemployed, but you got nine point two million job openings. So I think as kids are going back to school, parents can go back to work. And you've also got the unemployment benefits are going to run out in September. So I think all this equals, you know, a pretty solid uh, situation for the consumer, despite the fact that we're seeing, you know, a, a recent slowdown on the on certainly the, you know, the furniture and the the, the, the good side of the, the equation as opposed to the services side. So um, we want to buy these dips in here. And um, if you get some uh, news around tapering and, and, you know, certainly going to September, which is the worst month for the market of the year, um, we want to use that as an opportunity to buy um, the reopening plays and, and look forward for the next 12 months. Sure. So in your plays will be interesting to people because they are a little more under the radar. First Hawaiian, Caesars and Palomar Technology. Which of these is up 88 percent? I mean, I can imagine First Hawaiian and Caesars should be up nicely off the bottom last year. Yeah, Caesars has been just fantastic. And, um, you know, a lot of times you can bet on the, the horse, you can bet on the jockey. And, and this is one where Tom Reeg has done such a phenomenal job that we're certainly betting on the jockey. Um, you know, they just made a $4 billion acquisition of William Hill. They're going to be getting into iGaming and, and they're going to spend another, you know, billion dollars on uh, online gaming and, and iGaming. And so I think this is going to be uh, continue to work out pretty well. I mean, their their peers tend to trade, you know, um, 11 to 13 times cash flow. They're going to they're going to make $10 a share in cash flow eventually. And so we think it's $125 stock and has a lot more upside and the perfect type of stock we want to buy on on dips. Yeah. And we do, still do like First Hawaiian a lot as well as a reopening play. One quick point on First Hawaiian. I mean, how nervous do you get when you hear people go, well, spending slowing down, maybe they're not going to taper in September. And, and listen, even if they do, you've seen bond yields drop half a point all summer long with that idea baked in. That must make somebody nervous about the financials. Yeah, exactly. And so when you see yields going down, right, that's going to be a tailwind for technology. And I'm actually going to take uh, profits in technology as it has that tailwind. Hmm. And when yields go down, you see the 10-year where it is, that's going to be a tougher spot for financials. I want to buy it and go against the crowds. And uh, and I think yields are going to go up later, um, you know, probably in the year, if not next year. 
And I think that's when uh, financials are going to start to get a little bit of net, in, in, net interest margin and make some money. And so I want to buy things when they're contrarian and uh, right. undervalued. Right. Again, though, if rates don't go up, then, you know, maybe a little bit different story. But let me ask you about Palomar Technology, yeah. because despite its name, it's actually a PNC insurer, right? Yeah. Yeah, this is a this is a very interesting story. I mean, just focused on on places that people don't want to go. Earthquakes um, actually back to Hawaii. Um, they they do, um, you know, um, all, all sorts of yeah earthquakes and, and things along that that line. So um, we're, we're pretty excited about this one. And um, their technology just gets so granular that their underwriting is just much better than any of their peers. And they just continue to take share. The total addressable market is enormous. They just scratch the surface. And um, and as they offer more and more products, the, the TAM even gets larger over time. So we think this is going to be a good one. It's It's been beaten up and a, just a great one to put away um, in, in, in sort of small cap land right yeah. here. And we get two very different pictures of the consumer and the economy uh, in the last few moments. You know, one, a story of a slowdown and yours more a story of staying power. Uh, Sandy, it's good to have you with us. Thanks so much. Thanks, Kelly. Sandy Villary with the Villary Balanced Fund. Coming up, Binance is facing a legal battle involving hundreds of investors who say a major outage on the crypto exchange cost them millions. We'll speak to a private equity firm helping with the legal bills and what could be a landmark case for crypto. Plus, Macy's is on pace for its best day since May after blowing earnings estimates out of the water and hiking its full year forecast. We'll break down the quarter and ask whether this growth is sustainable. We're back in a moment. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Nearly 1,000 investors are expected to seek damages from Binance after the crypto exchange experienced an outage that froze accounts on a big down day. It's being called a landmark case for the crypto industry, and Dom Chu is here with the details. Dom? All right. So, so Kelly, Binance has become one of the most popular and most visible transaction platforms in the entire cryptocurrency universe. But the world's biggest digital currency exchange by transaction volume is now the target of what could become one of the largest international consumer arbitration cases in history. Earlier this year, the cryptocurrency world was rocked by increased regulatory pressure from Chinese regulators. Assets like Bitcoin, Ethereum and others plunged in value. But when traders using the Binance exchange tried to exit their positions, they were met with system outages that prevented many from getting out before losses were sustained. Binance did issue a statement saying its policy is fair in that it compensates users who experienced actual trading losses tied to system malfunctions, but does not cover what it calls hypothetical or unrealized profits lost. A group of traders is now looking to take legal action against Binance, and they've secured help and financing. 
from private equity firm Liddy Capital, which is a Swiss-based company that specializes in litigation finance. It has pledged to provide at least $5 million in funding to help claimants win their arbitration case against Binance. So joining us now is David Kay, the chief investment officer and executive chairman of Liddy Capital. David, thank you very much for joining us on this exchange exclusive here. Can you please take us through, David, what exactly brought this case to your attention? You specialize in litigation finance. Why Binance? Why this case? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on. You know, it's it's interesting. So we are the first private equity firm that is on the blockchain. Um, we're financed from the blockchain and we're focused on litigation financing. But what really got me involved in it um, was that we pledged to put five to 10% of every dollar we raised into nonprofit making opportunities or, or circumstances. For example, people who lost $25,000 and were scammed. And so we set up with something called Scam Busters. And through our Scam Busters initiative, we got an email about this case, which was amazing. I sat down, I met with the group, and we hammered out a deal. So what, is, what exactly does a deal involve with litigation finance on your side of things? You're putting up this money, at least $5 million. What are you expecting in return? You mentioned some of these nonprofit type cases. Is this one of them, or are you expecting some kind of a cut in terms of the overall case in the event that you actually hypothetically win this? It's a good question. This is not a nonprofit case. This is a case where we're going to commit at least $5 million and we will get 30% of any amounts that we ultimately get from Binance in exchange for financing 100% of the costs and taking 100% of the risk. Traders that were harmed, who Binance has broadly ignored, there is now an option. You can come, you can sign up at financeclaim.com and you can join us. And if you join us, there is no risk. There is no out-of-pocket cost. Uh, we will represent you, and, and we will have this issue, this question, this important question that is out there about how does this new kind of company, a company without regulation, without offices, without headquarters, how do consumers interact with them? Can they be held accountable? How do you expect or how do you think regulatory bodies from around the world will treat this particular case Will it be precedent setting? Will it influence policy in key crypto trading type markets around the world? What exactly do you feel as though will be the outcome in the event that you are in some ways, maybe not wholly, but some ways successful with your case? I, I, I frankly think that that's the best case scenario for Binance. Um, you know, query whether it is better for Binance to lose or win this case. If the answer is somehow that they can avoid regulation in any jurisdiction around the globe, and then as a result, not have to face any potential compensation claims um, from customers that it hurts. I mean, Dom, the last 50 years, developed countries around the world have created a system to protect consumers, both generally and in large, complicated financial transactions. If this can't be regulated and there's no place for customers to seek recompense, I, I think what you're going to see is you're going to see regulators have to step in. That means that they won't be in a position to protect their citizens, to offer them an option. I mean, when you, when you set up a exchange, you and I couldn't just wake up one day and set up an exchange. 
There are rules. You're required to have certain amount of assets in country just in case something like this happens. And importantly, you, you, you are required to submit to jurisdiction in that country so that the regulators and the government can protect its citizens. So I, I think this is a really important case. It's a landmark case both for crypto period. That's very, very interesting, David. It's Kelly here. I just have one question. Would you distinguish between Binance's global operations and what it's doing in the U.S.? I mean, this is still a heavily used platform. Yeah, it, I, I would. Um, I, I think that, well, let's put it this way. You, you have entities like Coinbase who are trying as hard as they can to, to follow regulation. And, and I'll tell you, our group is made up of futures and leveraged products, traders, and when the CFTC came out with regulations about a year ago that touched on crypto, Coinbase and others that are trying to follow regulation, they shut down their futures and leveraged mm-hmm. trading products. They're not operating. Finance ignored it. And now look where we sit. Now, now David, uh, finally, before we let you go, I, I know that Kelly and I have been talking at length today about this, this particular story. What exactly do you think will be the, the reaction from Binance when it hears this arbitration case being brought? Now, it's being brought in Hong Kong. The, the claimants, what, what kinds of stories will they tell to try to persuade the, the arbitrators over there to, to, to rule in their favor? I mean, we're, I'm, I'm as curious as you are. Uh, to see what they're going to say. You know, I'll tell you that they've set up this private dispute resolution mechanism. It costs $65,000 per case, okay? So you have to pay for the arbitrator and the center. Uh, based on their view of this contract, if even the 700 people in the Discord group want to bring a claim, that's $45 million that needs to be paid just to be heard. So I'm, I'm very curious what they're going to say. We, we hope that they will come do the right thing by their customers. And if they don't, then we're going to need to see how their system has been working and what happened on that day and other days and let it see the light of day and have an arbitrator decide whether a trader, okay, there's one person in our group who had $12 million. Bitcoin started to go down. He tried to close out his transaction. He had pictures and videos of him trying to close out the transaction. He could not close the contract. And by the time the site got up, Binance had completely liquidated his account. He had zero dollars and zero cents, notwithstanding that he did everything right. You tell me whose responsibility is that? Is that his? We don't think so. David, very interesting. Thank you for joining us to explain how this will work, what's at stake and who's involved. David K of Liddy Capital and Dom, our appreciation as well uh, for your reporting on this. Dom Chu. Coming up, Amazon is shopping for space as it reportedly opens uh, several large physical retail locations it's planning to. Is an Amazon department store coming to a town near you? Plus, a decades-long drought is forcing federal officials to declare the first-ever water shortage for the Colorado River Basin. Up next, we'll look at how the growing water crisis out west is a new focus for Wall Street. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. 
Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Dow has turned lower again, as you can see right here. It's down 75 points right now, about 85, so it's dropping as I speak. Uh, we were briefly higher at top of the hour, but we were down 300 at the low, so we're nowhere near that yet. The s and still at 5, the Nasdaq still up 42. In terms of sectors, obviously tech, staples, and healthcare are among the leaders. There's tech uh, with a gain of 1%, a notable mover to the upside today, while energy is by far the biggest laggard. It's down 3%, and crude is on its longest losing streak since February of 2020. We heard Kathy Wood talk about that this morning. Also take a look at the Crane Shares China Internet ETF, the K-Web. It's down another 4% today. Alibaba, JD.com, Baidu, they're shedding uh, again as well, 3 to 6% on concerns about Beijing's tech crackdown. I mentioned Kathy Wood a moment ago. She also had some... Uh, issues with the near-term possibilities for these names. Take a quick listen. We have never said uh, the Chinese names are uninvestable. What we have said is because of the social engineering, uh, it seems, or re-engineering that's taking place in China, that the valuations associated with these companies uh, are are damaged and and we don't think they're going to go up uh, uh, anytime soon. She also said the way that China nationalized its after-school education industry seared the memory and uh, left a lasting impression. Remember, a lot of these names are down 40 to 60 percent from their recent highs. Now over to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly. Hello, everyone. And here's what's happening at this hour. The Taliban breaking up another protest with gunfire. This one near the airport in Kabul, where we see a long procession of cars and people carrying an Afghan flag that's really become a symbol of defiance. Unclear at this point if there were any injuries. And on the news, evacuating the thousands of Americans still in Afghanistan. And a look at who is leading the Taliban and how they will govern Afghanistan. That is tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. At R. Kelly's sex trafficking trial, a key accuser testified that Kelly often videotaped their sexual encounters and demanded that she dress like a Girl Scout. This is the day after she told the court that her relationship with Kelly started when she was a minor. Defense lawyers then questioned if she was stalking Kelly, which she denied. And the Biden administration says that it will erase student loan debt for more than 300,000 Americans. The plan applies to people with disabilities that leave them unable to earn significant incomes. The loan forgiveness could total more than $5.8 billion. You're now up to date, Kelly. I'll send it back to you. Always chipping away at it, Rahel Banks. Well, Macy's commuter question, luxury's big comeback, and pets got us through the pandemic. All that and more in today's retail edition of Rapid Fire right after this. Welcome back, everybody. This is a very special edition of Rapid Fire. It's all retail. There are so many stories here right now, and this is going to circle back to our discussion at the top of the hour and help explain what is going on with the consumer. Here to break down all of these headlines, let's welcome in our Bob Bassani, Courtney Reagan, and Jan Niffen, CEO of J. Rogers Niffen Worldwide Enterprises. Great, great group. Uh, to get into all of this. So let's start with Macy's. The shares are soaring after they had a monster second quarter. They're on pace for their best day ever. The department store beat EPS estimates. By the way, there's Macy's up 22.5% right now. It's also about a $22 equity. So they beat estimates by more than a dollar on EPS, crushed sales expectations. They doubled basically their full year guidance, reinstated the dividend, approved a $500 million buyback program. The CEO still sees two question marks for the retailer. Listen. Back to office is in flex right now. You've got a lot of companies that are shifting their date about when the back to office is going to be. Everybody's talking about hybrid. And how does that office worker, when do they come back? Are they comfortable in coming back and are they going to shop in our stores? That's a question mark. And clearly international tourism, we do not expect to come back in 2021. 
Courtney, here's my question. What was the deal with Macy's in, you know, this is sound like a, a dumb question, during 2020, okay? I imagine that department stores were pretty rough, but maybe here and there there were some, some bright spots. I mean, if we're going into a pandemic light environment for the winter, what is that going to look like for Macy's? And why don't investors seem to care today? They seem to think that this it's just all, you know, all wonderful times ahead. Yeah, so good question, Kelly. Uh, Macy's, of course, was considered a non-essential retailer, so it was mandated to close its stores for quite a while. It did have some pretty good traction on the website, which which CEO Jeff Gannett says now makes up almost a third of total sales. Um, It was even more than that during the pandemic because customers didn't have the option to shop in stores. But overall, 2020 wasn't a great year for a retailer like Macy's. And things have really started to pick up. And some people are pointing to what we call revenge spending or us coming out of hibernation and sort of wanting to treat ourselves to a new dress or maybe some new makeup for the first time that we've seen friends or gone to an event for a while. And so I asked Macy's CEO, Jeff Gannett, is this something that's really sustainable or is this just sort of a moment of time where pent up demand is getting unleashed all at once? And he says that he does believe that it is sustainable and that Macy's attracted 5 million new customers during the quarter. The trick, of course, is to keep them coming back, which I asked him about. And he says, you know, he has strategies in place to do that with the website, with the app, with the stores, with new vendors. Um, But, you know, it's funny, Kelly, with the Delta variant, I'm worried, admittedly, just personally, about what could happen. Mm -hmm. Um, But none of these retail CEOs really are. They haven't seen it yet in the data. They haven't seen the slowdown even in the areas where they're reissuing the mask mandates for their associates. Very interesting. So, Jan, we also saw Kohl's topping estimates. They had growth driven by higher in-store sales, rebound in customer traffic. I mean, we've been talking at length about how sort of troubled to the point of going extinct department stores are. What is this news flow now telling you? Should investors be a buyer of these stocks or a seller of this strength? Oh, no, these two are going to play well. And I think what we're saying is, these are the last men standing, right? I mean, Penny's is essentially gone. Sears was already gone. Stage Stores is gone. None of the players are still there in the space. And, you know, we talk about not that many stores closed last year because majors didn't close that many. But there were about 30,000 resale stores closed permanently last year and 100,000 restaurants. Wow. That money goes somewhere. And we're certainly seeing right now it go right into on your back. People are buying clothes. People are buying shoes, accessories. So it's great if you're a vendor, and it's great if you're one of these third-party sellers of these vendors right now because they're the only place left for those sellers to be. And so there's Kohl's Bob up 8%. Give us some perspective on these stock moves. Well, as usual, I'm the curmudgeon here. (laughs) The way I look at this, is there a fundamental reason to own department stores? Is there a make a growth story? argument for me. And I don't see it. I see them still losing market share long term. I see them losing to Target. I see it to Walmart. I see it to Costco, even TJX and the the discounters. So given that there's a secular decline story, I don't understand the the bull argument. Now, the question becomes, what's the right price to own them? I agree Macy's may not disappear, but the question becomes, what's the right price to own them given the valuations? Let me jump in and I want everyone's answer to this. But Bob, let's also let this be a peg to move into our second topic here. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that Amazon is looking to move into department stores. So if this whole idea is so horrendous, 
Jan, what does Amazon see here? And what, what a strange, ironic twist of fate if Amazon emptied all existing department stores only to replace them with its own content. I've been telling you guys since 2014 that Amazon needed a thousand stores and that they should just go buy Kohl's and save themselves the aggravation right. of billing themselves. I have not changed <laughs> my mind about that. Amazon has been a pretty bad brick and mortar retailer. They're a great online retailer. They could buy talent. They could buy private label. They could buy brands if they just went out and bought a real retailer and let them run that business for them. But assuming they do it themselves, the reason they're doing it's very simple. They are not growing fast enough online anymore. People like Walmart are actually growing a little faster online than Amazon is. If you just look at percentage gains. So they need that. They need to take that money back from the other players because they only do half of the retail business in, online in the country. Only half. The rest of the retail business is out there, 80% of it's still not online. They need to be in the stores. Okay. Everybody needs stores, everybody needs to be online, including Amazon. But Courtney, what they're doing, you know, if they bought Kohl's, that would just be selling Kohl's uh, inventory. Amazon <laughs> is saying, we have a lot of our own brands. I mean, I think I've purchased many of them without even re uh, realizing it. And we've talked over the last few weeks here about, even I've been looking at my Amazon Prime account and saying, I don't watch the video. I don't think I really need the two-day shipping anymore. All I really do is go to the grocery store every couple of weeks. Like, I kind of, you know, so it's, I offer it as just one little consumer who's been a member for 16 years going, I don't know, is it worth 100 and whatever dollars? <laughs> yeah, exactly, Kelly. And Jan makes some really good points. We showed a chart there about how Amazon's uh, growth is really struggling when it actually comes to the physical stores. They actually do have physical stores. If you think about they own Whole Foods, they have Amazon Books, they've got these four-star locations, they have the Amazon Go, but they struggle with that revenue build there. And Wells Fargo says they are actually the number one apparel seller in the country, surpassing the other traditional retailers. I believe it. And other traditional retailers will probably tell you, see, we told you all along, you have to have stores and you have to have online. And so when I asked Jeff Gannett about it, he kind of said, look, I'm surprised it's taken them this long to do this. When I asked Cole's CEO, Michelle Goss, about it this morning, she said, yes, of course, we have a partnership with them already with their returns program and selling some of their goods. And we already basically compete with them. And Kelly, right. to your point, a lot of the other retailers had to catch up to compete with the two-day shipping. Yeah. So I don't know. I think maybe everyone would say the right answer is to have both and to do it fast, to do it well, and to have the right brands. And so everyone's just sort of copying each other's strategy. What's old is new again. Well, Bob, listen, I, I want your take on this. I, we're, we've also got to talk luxury and pets, though. So. Okay. With an, with, go give me, go give ahead. Give me 10 seconds. Yeah, go ahead. Omnichannel is fine, but let me just say there's less here than meets the eye. <laughs> $480 billion in revenue from Amazon, $22 billion uh, from Macy's, okay? They're not going to move the dial much doing this. Yes, it's a little learning thing for them. Maybe they'll pick up a few new customers. I just think there's less here than meets the eye, although, yes, we pay homage to Omnichannel. Yes, yes, yes. I yes, just yes. think Go if ahead. we included Target as a traditional department store that, you know, it would view the whole category in a very, very different way. Okay, I mentioned luxury. Let's just quickly mention what's been going on with the sector because it's also been making a major comeback this quarter driven by record savings and government stimulus over the past year and a half. Also rising vaccination rates. For instance, look at Tapestry. They just beat sales estimates for all three brands, Coach, Kate Spade, and Stuart Weitzman. They're just the latest in the luxury space to have strong earnings after Ralph Lauren, Capri Holdings, and LVMH. I almost, Jan, want to use this as an opportunity to just let you song and dance about how much you love Ralph Lauren. If they, you know, Give us a stock pick. What's your number one stock idea for, uh, for our audience right now? 
Okay, my number one stock idea is not just Ralph Lauren, it's all of the vendors, whether it's BVH, VF, Ralph Lauren, Levi's, Contour. Vendors and brands are going to win going forward, and they're going to win during this period where everybody goes back to work and everybody goes back to school and everybody needs clothes and everybody starts to travel. The brands are going to win. Higher end's probably better, Capri and Tapestry maybe. TVH and VF, they'll have some pretty good brands out there, too. And denim is going to be hot as heck. So Contour and Levi's should be great. So I'm going to pick the category. The category is strong brands to return to work and school. All right. Very, very good. Uh, a quick programming note. The CEO of Tapestry will be on Closing Bell later to talk about the return of the luxury consumer. It's an exclusive interview. Uh, make sure you don't miss it. But we have to mention the term of the day, which is furry annuity. Before we go here, we're talking about Petco, which also had robust earnings for the second quarter. The shares have rebounded after dipping in the red pre-market. The CEO was on Squawk Box, and he said 10 million pets came into households last year, and he does call this the furry annuity, Bob, saying it will play out for years in their favor. I'll tell you why people like animals, because animals are easier to get along with than human beings. My dad always said, the dog doesn't talk back to me. (laughs) Right, the dog doesn't say... By the way, I don't like your TV habits and your personal hygiene that much. They don't give you a problem here. You, you see the headlines? More people love their pets than their, than their family. 38% of dog owners love their pets more than their partner. That's a real headline. A third of parents prefer their pets over their kids. Well, let me That's tell you something. That's why this is doing so well. I, think, I agree with Courtney, this story. I think people are insane for owning pets. And the people in my blood, they have to walk them like eight times a day and pick up after them. I'm going, at least a kid, you stop changing diapers after a couple years. I mean, if you have a dog, but I have a cat, Wuzzy. He's very easy, and he loves sitting on my lap. This work-from-home thing is like his dream. I totally understand why people spend a lot of money on their pets. I think Petco is going down the right road here with all they're trying to do and adding some services in. We just want to be able to pamper our pets because they make us feel better in all these sorts of ways. But you also have to really win online when it comes to sort of the commodity products. You can't really convince me to go to a store to get my cat litter and my cat food. Ship that to me. Definitely. You offer me a service. Maybe I can bring Wuzzy into the store. Then we're talking. Right. But that stuff is heavy. I, we've got a new furry friend on our street just in the past <laughs> week. So it, it is still continuing. Bob, I'm glad we found one area where you're not so curmudgeonly. Bob Bassani, Courtney Reagan, and Jan Niffen. Thank you all very, very much. All right. It's the smallest sector in the S&P today, but it's the best performing one in the month of August. Why investors are taking a closer look at utilities And we want to show you shares of Pfizer. Bloomberg reporting that Hedge Fund Value Act has built more than a billion-dollar position in the company. Uh, The shares are up about 3% on this report. Jim Cramer will be sure to ask him when he is on Mad Money tonight. Frank Bisignano, that is, at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Stay with us. Welcome back. The utility sector may not be the most exciting or the most most growth-oriented sector, but it does get a lot of attention in times of market turbulence and falling interest rates. And it's the focus of our sectornomics this month. Dom Chu has more. Dom? All right. So it's been an underperformer over the last year, the last year-to-date period. But over the last couple of weeks, you've seen a big uptick in interest in those utility stocks. But as you can see here, still a big underperformer. That white line is the utility sector, only up about 10 percent in the same time. The S&P is up roughly 18. Now, if you take a look at the reasons why the dividend yields are a big part of that story, why it's getting so much more interest, when interest rates fall, it makes the dividend yields of these companies look relatively more attractive. The sector overall in the orange-yellow line up there 
has a dividend yield of around 3% versus about 1.5% or a little bit less for the overall S&P 500. Now, as for the stocks that have the biggest dividend yields in this particular sector, take a look at these particular names. If you look at PPL, 5.5% yield, Pinnacle West Capital, 4% yield, First Energy, 4% yield, Con Edison, Southern Company, some of the biggest ones there, and they've all been positive over the last year-to-date period and 12 months. So it's not like those yields are there because the stock has fallen so much. And I would note this, Kelly, check out that first energy trade. It's the best-performing stock in the sector so far in 2021, and it has that 4% yield. It's up about 27% wow. in that time. It's the reason why a lot of traders are still looking, by the way, at the valuations of these companies. They may still have some room to grow, especially in times of that market uncertainty. Right. Back over to you. Right, they're getting up there. Dom, thank you very, sure. very much. Coming up with COVID cases, hospitalizations, and deaths all up on the Delta variant, is the restaurant resurgence poised to come to an end? We're going to talk to the CEO of P.F. Chang's about all of this next. Welcome back, everybody. Restaurants are bracing for a potentially grim fall and winter again as the Delta variant surges across the U.S. New data this week shows consumers are already pulling back on restaurant spending. Will this plus rising inflation, the ongoing labor shortage, derail the restaurant rebound? Joining me now is Damola Adamalakin. He is the CEO of P.F. Chang's. They operate more than 200 restaurants in the U.S. Damola, it's great to have you. Can you tell us a little bit about recent momentum? What's happening on the ground? Yeah, no, you, you, you kind of hit on some of the main things we're, we're dealing with. Um, you know, we've seen a nice rebound in terms of sales ever since uh, regulations eased and, and consumers started coming back out. Uh, a lot of the issues we're seeing are on the cost side with labor, cost of sales and managing through uh, some inflation. Uh, so we're, we're dealing with these things. And, and obviously with the Delta variant, um, you're seeing uh, kind of you know, an increased difficulty in getting staffing. Uh, our vendors are having some issues filling supplies, so it's, it's kind of excavating the issues that we were seeing uh, coming out of the pandemic. Yeah, I uh, I have to admit, when I saw you, I had to go Google and find out everything about you because I'm like, is this guy, you know, I'm, you're making me feel old, Demola, but I'm extremely impressed. <laughs> you stepped into this role last year in the middle of the pandemic. Tell me what your strategy is for P.F. Chang's and how much of that I, I can't imagine, you know, when you first came into it, you thought, oh, yeah, in the fall of 21, we're definitely going to be dealing with COVID still. I mean, this can't be what anybody was anticipating. What do you do now? Yeah, you know, um, my background is, you know, I helped lead the, the transaction to acquire P.F. Chang's for, for Paulson & Company, which, uh, you know, is my, my employer. Um, and so, you know, we, we came in with a, with a strategy really focused around a couple of things. Number one, uh, driving in restaurant sales by focusing on the guest experience. Uh, making sure that the experience and the food kind of match so people have a great time when they come to our restaurants. Uh, and then we had a real focus on what we call off-premise sales, which is takeout, delivery, and catering. Mm. Um, and that was a key part of our thesis when we bought the business in 2019. Obviously, I had no idea COVID was coming, but uh, we were fortunate that that was an area that we developed capabilities in the year before COVID once we acquired the business. Um, and that really let us transition people very nicely from, uh, you know, dining when that got shut down to off-premises and uh, and that, that, you know, helped us get through the pandemic in, in, in a relatively, you know, compared to the industry in a relatively you yeah. know, strong position. Absolutely. I, the, the one other thing I, I, my people said, you know, these, this guy hates ghost kitchens. Do, you know, tell me what's what's your beef with ghost kitchens, Damola? I, I don't hate ghost kitchens. I, I think that um, they work for certain people. The, the, the thing about, you know, our food is all made from scratch. Uh, it's, it's, you know, we roll dumplings by hand, we, hand, we, we cook in the wok. So it's, it's, it's a more expensive and more time consuming process to cook food. So we need a certain amount of sales uh, to, to make our cost structure work. 
Um, so I don't hate ghost kitchens. I don't think it works for our concept. Right, and, right. you know, we, we benefit from street side traffic. We benefit from having PF Chang's on, on the side of a building. People walk in, they try it. Um, and you don't get that with a ghost kitchen. And on the other, so you're, you're limiting your sales volumes and you can't, you know, we can't reduce our cost structure past a certain point because we're making everything from scratch. Um, so it just doesn't work for us, but it certainly works if you make wings or burgers or fries or something that's, um, you know, a lot easier to cook and, and you can you can survive with a lower with lower sales. No, and a, a nice sales pitch in there as well. I did not know they were hand uh, done. Made me think twice maybe about the need to go in there and experience it again for myself. Damola, thank you Absolutely. so, so much for being here today. And good luck. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Damola Adamalakin is the CEO of P.F. Chang's. Up next, as climate change continues wreaking havoc on the western U.S., we'll take a look at the companies working to fix the water crisis and talk about some of the gains they're seeing. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. U.S. officials recently declared the first ever water shortage on the Colorado River as climate change continues to affect flows and as California deals with widespread drought. Christina Partsinevelis is here with more on this declaration and the companies working to help solve the water crisis. Christina? Well, Kelly, water as a commodity is scarcer than it's been in decades. And like you mentioned, U.S. officials declared the first ever water shortage on the Colorado River. And that's going to trigger water cuts in several states come January 1st. So 60 percent of the state's population resides in South Carolina. And even that region just issued a water supply alert calling on all to conserve and prepare for continued drought. And to make matters worse, there are some problems at an L.A. sewage treatment plant after a massive spill just last month, and that's reduced the region's water recycling capabilities as well. And so as a result of this water predicament, water stocks like Global Water Resources, American Water Works, just to name a few, are benefiting, and they're all higher on the month. And even water resource company-themed ETFs are seeing higher returns. For example, First Trust Water ETF, Invesco Water ETF, they're all up double digits year-to-date. And the drought could affect chip makers. Intel and Taiwan Semiconductor plan to open new facilities in Arizona, and they need a lot of water to cool equipment and clean silicon wafers. But for now, the cuts will primarily affect agriculture in the state. And with clean water becoming an increasingly scarce resource, water is more valuable than it's been in decades. And so are the companies that supply it. It's fascinating, especially connecting it back to the chips. And I can only imagine all the other industrial capabilities. Christina, thanks. Christina Partsinevelis. That does it for us on The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.